Good evening. Take your Bibles, please. Join me in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We're looking at end time events. We uh, passed out a handout a couple of weeks ago. Is there anybody here that needs a copy of that? That either didn't get one or got one and you have no idea where it's at right now, but you know it's not in your hand. So Brad's passing them out. Got a few up front here too, Brad. But uh, the main theme as we uh, look at end time events is the fact that God wins. That's the good news. We just sang about believing in him, trusting in him. And it's great to know that when you trust in someone that it's the victory side. It's the right side. And uh, God is victorious. Our Savior Jesus Christ is victorious. We read about that in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, where it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Christ is going to make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god and the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean followed him on white horses now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty god and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords he comes to make war. He makes war with the word that comes out of his mouth, strikes the nations. He is going to be victorious. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I might point out, this is talking about unbelievers, those that fight against the Lord Jesus Christ and try to keep him from coming back. I'm not talking about believers here, but unbelievers. It says in verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Believe it or not, when Christ comes back, men are actually going to try to keep him from coming back to this planet. They're going to fight against him, but it's going to be fruitless. It says, then the beast, this is the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. God wins. Revelation 19 tells us a little bit about how Jesus Christ wins and is victorious, and uh, we find that uh, there's the description of the kind of the, some of the end time events that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And the first thing I would point out is the fact that what we read here in Revelation 19 is not describing 
the rapture of the church. In, in reality, what we're, we see describing, seen described here in Revelation 19 is the return of Jesus Christ to the earth some seven plus years after the rapture of the church. Here in Revelation 19, Jesus comes to the earth. He comes to set up his kingdom and reign supreme. That doesn't happen at the rapture. At the rapture of the church, Jesus comes to the clouds. And as he comes to the clouds, what happens to the dead in Christ? They rise first. Their graves are empty. They meet the Lord in the air. They have glorified resurrection bodies. What happens to those of us that are still living when the rapture takes place? We are what, Michael? We're caught up and changed in the twinkling of an eye, and we meet Christ in the clouds, and we go back to the Father's house with him. That's the rapture of the church. And uh, that's what we look forward to. When could that happen? That could happen before we finish here this evening. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That'd be great if that were to take place. The rapture of the church. And uh, we, we find, where would you look in the Bible if you wanted to learn about the rapture of the church? Give me three scripture passages, just roughly. You don't have to give all the verses. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. 1 Corinthians 15 also describes the fact that we get changed in the twinkling of an eye. It describes a little bit what our resurrection bodies are, are going to be like. It points out just as surely as we have earthly bodies now, we are going to have glorified bodies like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, one other passage, Gospel of John chapter 14. Jesus made the promise that I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And there's plenty of room in the Father's house. And if I prepare a place for you there, I am going to come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So if you want to learn more about the rapture, you want to talk to anybody about the rapture, there's your passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, John chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we learn about the rapture of the church. By the way, Sometimes people say, well, well, how can we say there's going to be two, two aspects to the second coming? The rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the return of Jesus at the, uh, the end of the book of Revelation here in chapter 19. Well, I think we have a good precedent for that in the fact that when we look at the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, we find that there are two kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Messiah. Some predict him coming as a glorious king to set up his kingdom here on planet Earth and to sit on the throne of the nation of Israel and rule over the whole earth. And other passages of Scripture, like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Daniel 9:27, speak about him coming and being a suffering Savior. Now, which of those is true? Do we have a contradiction in Scripture? Is Jesus coming to be a suffering Savior? Or is he coming to be a glorious King? Well, both. Both. He came the first time, and he came to be a suffering Savior. And it's a good thing he did. Because if he hadn't suffered on that cross for our sins, 
we could never be part of his kingdom. He had to uh, prepare people for the kingdom and, and prepare us for the Father's house before we could go to a place that he's prepared for us. So he came the first time to be a suffering savior. He, he offered the kingdom. He even demonstrated the powers of the kingdom, uh, demonstrated his power to be the king. He fed people miraculously. He raised the dead. He uh, showed powers over nature while he was here. He demonstrated all that, but he was, he was rejected. And he died on that cross for our sins. But he also, when he was here the first time, promised that he was going to come back again. And in fact, as he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1, the angels tell the disciples that are watching him ascend into glory that this same Jesus who's taken up from you will what? Come again in like manner. So we look for Jesus to come back in bodily form just like he left us in his glorified resurrection body. And the next time he comes, it's going to be at the rapture of the church. We have two comings. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily tell you in, in the Old Testament. There are going to be two comings. One to be the suffering Savior, one to be the glorious King. But as you start looking at the passages, you see that that's exactly what, what takes place, exactly what the New Testament's teaching. And we take that as a precedent. We come over to look at some of the Old Testament passages, then look at the, the New Testament passages, and we come to the conclusion he's coming again and as part of that, he's coming to the clouds, taking his people to be with himself. And then he's going to come to this earth again some seven years at the end of the tribulation period. So what we have in Revelation 19 is not the rapture of the church. That's already been described for us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and John 14. And it's an event that had already occurred. So we looked at the rapture of the church last week. And uh, we see that it takes place at the end of the church age. Christ comes back to the clouds. Believers are caught up. They're raptoed. They're raptured. The Latin is rapto. Caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And good news, thus we shall always be with the Lord. So we can encourage each other with those words. Uh, shortly after that, there'll be a signing of a treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. It's going to be a seven-year treaty which uh, marks out, when that takes place, it marks the beginning of the tribulation period. He's going to break that treaty in the middle of the tribulation period. He's going to demand worship. Uh, he's going to begin an affliction of the nation of Israel like uh, that even makes the Holocaust pale in significance to what's going to happen to the Jewish people. But one of the things going to happen to the Jewish people during that time is they're going to come to recognize Jesus really is their Messiah. And when he comes back, They'll look on him who pierced, who was pierced, and they will follow him as Savior and Messiah. So he comes back at the end of the tribulation period. That's what we have described here in Revelation 19. And uh, next we find that uh, the seven-year tribulation period. And then following that, we have at the end of that, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. There's our, our symbol again. And the next event that we see is the return of Christ with, with the church-age believers. We find Satan bound in a bottomless pit. Israel's regathered. Gentile nations are judged. And Christ sets up his kingdom. Thousand-year millennial kingdom. 
you're in Revelation 19, just move over one chapter to Revelation chapter 20. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bowed him for a thousand years. By the way, it seems like the Lord wants us to make absolutely no mistake about who it's talking about here. It uses a couple of the terms that are used symbolically of the devil. He's called the dragon. He's called the serpent. Uh, see that back in Revelation chapter 12. And then we find that he's specifically identified as the devil and Satan, our, our adversary, our attacker, our accuser. And what happens to him at the beginning of this millennial kingdom, he is cast into the bottomless pit and he's bound there for a thousand years they say why didn't he why, why, why won't he be bound there forever well God's got one more thing for the devil to do and he's going to be bound there for a thousand years by the way it lays out very specifically here talks about a thousand years that term millennial or millennium that comes from the Latin for a thousand so we're talking about a special thousand-year kingdom period here that's going to exist on planet Earth. It says, And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones. And they that sat on them, and a judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a how long? A thousand years. It keeps repeating that phrase, a thousand years. How long is the period of time? Do you get the idea the Holy Spirit's talking about here? thousand years thousand years not an indefinite period of time but a thousand years and here it talks about the tribulation saints those who were martyred those who died for Christ being resurrected to go into the kingdom and rule and reign with Christ for how long thousand years uh, there'll be others that will be resurrected it would seem from Daniel chapter 12 that that's when the Old Testament saints will be resurrected as well. Uh, first couple of verses of Daniel chapter 12. In fact, turn over there with me. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 says, And at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people. That's Daniel's people, Israel. And he says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people will be delivered. Uh, this is talking about the tribulation period, a time of trouble for Israel like the world has never seen. And he says, At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book, and verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting 
contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That apparently at that point, that's when the the uh, Old Testament saints are raised as well. I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. Could well be the Old Testament saints will participate in the rapture with the church, but that may be well what we're talking about here in Daniel chapter 12. In addition to the tribulation saints being raised and going into the millennial kingdom in glorified resurrection bodies, and the Old Testament saints being resurrected and going into the millennial kingdom in resurrection bodies, there will also be believers of Israel and the Gentile nations that will go into this millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. And there will only be believers to begin the millennial kingdom. There'll be those that are in glorified bodies, but there'll be some that will be in their natural bodies. Those that are in their natural bodies will reproduce and have children. And those children will be born in, in a perfect environment. Uh, the, if you go back to the Old Testament, read the descriptions of, of what it's going to be like in the kingdom. It's going to be a time of peace. In, in Isaiah, it talks about uh, men beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And people will study war no more. There will be peace on the earth. There will be perfect climate conditions. People, when they plant, they'll... they'll They'll get to harvest what they plant and get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They'll be perfect government. Isn't that something? Because who's going to be ruling and reigning? Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning. The government will be absolutely perfect. Economic conditions, educational conditions, all the conditions will be absolutely perfect through that, that thousand year period. And the curse will be lifted. And we read that even in the natural realm of things, that's when the, uh, the wolf will lay down with the, the lamb. And a child will be able to play next to a snake hole. You can go back to Isaiah and read uh, some of the chapters there that talk about what the conditions are going to be like. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 65. It, it talks about people living long, long ages again in the millennial kingdom. We marvel today when we see that, people, that uh, uh, Abraham lived as long as he did, and, and even more when we see how long Noah lived, and, and Adam lived 900 and some years, and Methuselah 900 years time. Well, we don't live that long today. Well, guess what? People will again in the millennial kingdom. And in fact, anybody that dies, basically it's gonna be an indication of God's judgment upon them going to be absolutely perfect conditions during that thousand-year kingdom. During that time, Israel will possess all the land that God promised to Abraham. All the land from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, the Nile River. Israel's never possessed that much property before, and they certainly don't now. They've got just a little sliver of land over there in the middle of the east. But one of these days, they're going to possess all that. God's going to fulfill all of his promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and to David as well. David was promised that he's going to have an heir that's going to rule on his throne and actually bring in an eternal reign. But this is going to be for this thousand-year period of time. And it's going to be a, a golden age for Israel. And the other nations will come up to Israel to learn about God. 
and they'll be taught about God. And there won't be any famine or any lack of knowledge about God during that time. There'll be plenty of information available, and it'll be a glorious time, glorious golden age for Israel on planet Earth with King Jesus ruling and reigning and ruling with a rod of iron. If any do not go along with his rule, they'll be judged. They'll be judged and be dealt with there. And so we have this going on for a thousand years. What would you expect to happen with anybody born during that time? Wouldn't you expect them to just naturally trust in Jesus and be a follower of Jesus? Many will. Many will. But sadly, there will be also many that will go along with the program outwardly but never really surrender their heart to Christ. It's kind of like a child that may be born into a Christian home. And he goes along with the program because things are a lot better with mom and dad when he goes along with the program. But can a child be born into a Christian home, go along with the program, but not really know Jesus as Savior? Is that possible? Sadly, it's very possible and sometimes happens. And sometimes then when they get older and they get out from under mom and dad's leadership, sometimes they rebel. But every child, every individual needs to come to a place where they trust Christ as their own savior personally. That will be true of all these people born in the tribulation, excuse me, in the millennial kingdom as, as well. Just as it's so important for you and me to come to the place where we trust Christ as savior today. And here, here's the amazing thing. You look at verse 7 here, and it says, Now when the thousand years have expired, end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison, bound for a thousand years. Now he's going to be set free. Why? Why, God, would you let him out of there? You know, he's not been deceiving the nations for a thousand years. He's been so great without Satan there. Why let him out? Well, it says he's going to go out, and he will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What city is that? That's Jerusalem. They surround the beloved city. Who rules and reigns there? Jesus rules and reigns from there. They're, they're coming up here at the end of a thousand years of perfection and glory. You find people coming up surrounding the beloved city and they depose Jesus from the throne. Is that what it says? <laughs> Not quite. It says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Well, what's all this about? Why, why does God only bind Satan for a thousand years, then let him out? Satan's good at one thing. He helps to bring out into the open what's in the heart of man. You see, one of the lessons we learn from the millennial kingdom is where the real problem of mankind is. Where's the real problem with mankind? It's an individual heart. That's where the problem is. And our heart needs to be changed. Who's the only one that can change our hearts? 
is Jesus. And that's only through a, a personal relationship with him. And although you've got many people that lived through that, that thousand years of, of absolute perfection with, with Jesus ruling and reigning and perfect government and perfect conditions, why would anybody rebel? Why would anybody rebel? Why did Adam rebel in the Garden of Eden? Why do we rebel? Because man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and it needs to be changed. And the only one that can change a heart is Jesus. Why does God let Satan out? Because he brings out into the open. These people go ahead and follow him. They're going to try a rebellion to get rid of Jesus. The human heart wants to get rid of Jesus, ruling and reigning. The human heart wants to put self on the throne. And that's going to be true for some during the millennial kingdom, just as it's true today. Why do people reject Jesus today? They want to, they want to run their own life. They don't want Jesus to run their life. So we find that this is a, going to be a massive rebellion because there's going to be reproduction during perfect conditions. And I would imagine there's going to be an awful lot of people born during that, how long? A thousand years. A lot of people born during that and sadly, a whole lot of them aren't going to follow Christ. How sad is that? And there's a massive rebellion. But how successful is it? Not successful at all. The fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And then in verse 10, it says, And the devil, who deceived these people, you know, he, he told them if they just followed him, they, they could have a part in his administration. Remember, he told Jesus that, didn't he? Just bow to me once, and, and you can have all the kingdoms of the world, and you won't have to go to the cross. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't bow to him? Well, he's going to deceive a lot of other people, just like he tries to deceive us today. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. There are those today that would like to do away with the, the whole concept of an eternal hell, the whole concept of eternal punishment. Man, when you've got passages like this in Scripture, you can't do that. In fact, kind of interesting to me, at the, at the end of the tribulation period, when Christ comes back, before the millennium gets started, the beast and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. And here we are a thousand years later, where are these guys? Where are they? They're still in the lake of fire, aren't they? Still being punished for their rebellion against God and against his son the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Satan's going to join them. No more bottomless pit for a thousand years. Where's Satan going eventually? He's going to the lake of fire. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter 25 that there'll be other people that'll be cast into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell wasn't really prepared for man. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, but those who rebel against God and refuse to take Christ as Savior will join the devil there 
you know what? I don't like the concept of eternal punishment. Is it trouble at all? Is it troubling to you at all? To think about people spending eternity in hell? That, that, that's hard. That's hard. It troubled God. In fact, it troubled him so much that he sent his son to die on the cross. He, he, God provided a way whereby people wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell. But how many ways did he provide? says there's one way and it's God's way and it's Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. You can't reject Christ and expect not to spend all of eternity in this lake of fire. As you move on through the passage, we find it says something else takes place. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. And I tell you, one of the worst things could ever happen to us is for us to stand before God's throne and be judged for our works. Because if we were judged for our works, where would we spend eternity? We'd spend eternity in hell. Because how many evil works would it take to isolate us from God? How many evil works did it take to bring a fall to the whole human race and bring death into the picture? So if we were judged by our works, what a horrible thing. What a horrible thing that would be. And for people to, to think that if they keep the Ten Commandments, which they don't do, or, or they live by the Sermon on the Mount, which they really they can't do, they think they're going to do these things and they'll be okay by God. It doesn't work. Judged by your works is a horrible thing. And those that are judged by their works, we read in verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire that is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This passage teaches that those that reject Christ, those who rebel against God and refuse his means of salvation will one day be raised. Their bodies will be raised. Right now, when an unbeliever dies, what happens? Their spirit goes to a place of torment. Just temporary. It is not purgatory that they have the hope of getting out to something better someday. It's a temporary place of torment. And we read here about the great white throne of God, the great white throne judgment. And it's all unbelievers that are going to be there. And they're going to stand there in their bodies. And then they'll be cast, body and soul into the lake of fire. That's a horrible thing to contemplate, isn't it? Is there, is there any hope to escape that? Well, the only hope to escape it is to be written in the book of life. Whose book of life is that? That's the Lamb's book of life. How can you make sure that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life? 
by embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. And then we can be sure our name is written there. And that that's really should be the cause of, of the, the basis for all of our rejoicing in life. I think about the apostles who were so excited when they came back from a preaching and ministry trip because they even were given power by the Lord to cast demons out of people. And they come back and, and they, they're so pumped up and, and everything and, and they're on fire. It's like they won the NCAA tournament or something. And they're, they're really on fire. And Jesus says to them, don't rejoice in the fact that the, that the demons are subject to what you tell them. Do you remember what Jesus said? Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Uh, boy, there's a lot of things we can enjoy in this life. But there's one thing we can really have as the basis for all of our rejoicing. And that's rejoice because our names are written in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life, in his shed blood for our sin. We can be sure of that if we know Christ as our Savior. So we have this, this judgment, this great white throne judgment that takes place. And uh, we get a picture of, of the heavenly city coming down from out of the heavens and resting upon the earth. And that brings us then to what we might call the eternal state. How long does that kingdom age last? Thousand years. Thousand years. But that's just kind of the warm-up for the reign of Jesus. How long is Jesus going to reign? He's going to reign forever. But the thousand years is just to start with, with a, another focus on Israel. But now we get into the eternal state. All the promises to Israel have been fulfilled. And Christ is still going to rule and reign forever. But there are going to be a few changes take place. What are the changes? Well, first of all, there will be no unbelievers going to the eternal state. None whatsoever. The devil's not going to be around. Where's he at when the eternal state begins? He's in the lake of fire. Where's the beast and the false prophet? They're still in the lake of fire. They've been there for a thousand years. Where are all unbelievers? Out of the kingdom. If you go over here to Revelation 21, what a beautiful description we have of the heavenly city. It's pictured here as a bride descending from heaven. And starting in verse 3, John says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is great. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed. Does that sound good to you? <laughs> Sounds good to me. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. All these things are promised to us by the Lord Jesus. We just sang a little while ago, I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded he can keep what I've committed unto him against that day. All these are promised by him. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give it a fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he overcomes shall inherit all things. And I'll be his God. He shall be my son. And then notice verse 8. A lot of times we read the first seven verses here, and we don't get into verse 8. But, uh, but you know, verse seven verses talk about the lot of the believer. 
Verse 8 talks about the unbeliever. It says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All of them are shut out of the eternal kingdom. One more thing about the eternal state, and we find that back in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Where we read starting in verse 10. Well, let's start in verse 9. That's a good one. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but he's long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness this present heaven and earth is going to be purged by fire. All the marks of sin are going to be eliminated. We see the marks of sin all around us. Every time you pick up a piece of sedimentary rock, what's that a testimony to? The flood. Yeah, the flood. All the marks of sin are going to be removed. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And what's it characterized by? Righteousness. Only righteousness. And we get to be a part of that because of God's grace and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God has in store for us. And we get to enjoy that new heaven and new earth with no marks of sin. For how long? Only forever. Only forever. No end to it. You know, pretty good future that God has in store for us, isn't it? God wins. God wins. And thank God, through his grace demonstrated towards us, we can be sure that we're on his side. And we're on the victory side. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've told us in your word about your ultimate victory and the fact that we get to share in it. Lord, we thank you that that victory is guaranteed by the event that we... Uh, we celebrate today on the first day of the week. And we celebrate in a special way next Sunday on Resurrection Day. We thank you because we have a resurrected living Savior that we can be sure of all these promises that we've looked at here this evening. Father, help us to walk out of here with confidence and to just lean upon you, Lord, and to be faithful to you. God, help us to be troubled by people around us that are on their way to an eternal hell. Help us to be troubled enough that we would share with them the blessed gospel of grace, how they can know Jesus Christ as Savior and live with you forever in glory instead of face your eternal punishment forever and ever and ever. God, help us to walk out of here tonight with encouraged people.